The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided the property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, there was a famine that arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to eat the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and here I am perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him, and he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it that we may eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record these words. We believe they had power for Luke's day, and we believe they have power today if we will but hear them. And so come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Open this word to us, maybe as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why are some drawn to Jesus and others grumble? Or to put it more personally, when I look at my own life, why was there a whole season of my life up until the senior year of high school that I grumbled against Jesus and then all of a sudden I began to be drawn near to Jesus? Why does that happen? We're in the second week of a three-week examination of the parable of the prodigal father, and you'll have to wait till next week to find out exactly why I think it should rightly be titled the prodigal father as opposed to the prodigal son. So you have to come back next week. 
But this question we asked last week, why is it that some are drawn to Jesus while others grumble? This chapter of Luke chapter 15 begins with a scandal. Verse 1 and 2, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, grumbled, saying, this, this isn't right. Why is it, Jesus, that you're allowing these broken people, these sinful people, these bad people to come and have fellowship with you? There's something wrong about you. And Jesus is saying, no, there's actually something wrong about your view of who God is. And so, in response, he gives them a parable. And a parable, as I said last week, is not just a cute little story. It's not a bedtime story from Jesus. It's not just a little illustration. A parable is provocative. A parable is meant to get a response. He tells stories in such a way that you can't but by the end respond one way or another. And so, he tells this parable. Why are some drawn to Jesus and others grumble? Well, as we saw last week, the reason is people are drawn to Jesus if they understand the gospel, the good news, as good news. You see, if we don't understand the gospel to be good news, we're not drawn to it. We've got to understand just how good this news is. And as we saw last week, the way we begin to be there is to recognize our need. When we see our need, when we're shown our need, suddenly the good news becomes good news in face of my need. This week, we're going to see that the way that we see the good news become good news for us is when we encounter grace. We need to understand what grace is. I don't think there's a better parable to show us a picture, a living picture of grace than this. So let's look together and see what grace looks like. Last week we saw the son, the younger of the two, demand his inheritance early while his father is still living. And in an ancient Near Eastern context, that essentially means, Dad, I wish you would drop dead. You're in the way of my money. If you would just get out of the way, stop breathing, I could get what's coming to me. It is a severe breaking of the relationship. There is nothing worse than a son in the ancient Near East can say to his father, but give me my share of the inheritance now. And so he runs off. He loses it all. He comes to a terrible place. He recognizes his need, and he comes home. And that's where we pick up today in verse 20. Luke chapter 15, verse 20, if you want to look in your Bibles or the Pew Bibles or on your iPhones. Verse 20, the son was on his way home. And we read that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And immediately we have to stop and say, how? How did the father see him a long way off? I mean, normally if the son's been gone for some time, it would be when the son arrives at the father's house that would be the first moment the father sees him, not a long way off. How is it the father could see the son from such a distance? Well, it's because the father's been looking for him. It's because the father's been watching for him. This son did the most horrible thing imaginable, absolutely shattered their relationship. And yet the father still 
every day is going out and looking down that road. Is this the day? Is today the day that I will see my son coming home? The father is waiting. The father is watching. Despite this terrible, terrible shattering of the relationship, the father is daily looking. And that's why he sees him a far way off. But it gets even better. Not only is the father watching for him, but the father, it says in verse 20, oh, verse 20 is so full of the gospel. It says that he felt compassion. I love the word compassion in the Bible. It's a word that sounds like what it describes. It's the word splanknon. And splanknon means your guts. He is ripped up on the inside. The experience of compassion for this father is to be torn up over the lostness of his son. He is daily feeling compassion for this lost boy. Not only is he watching for him, but he continues to be torn up. He hasn't just rejected him. He hasn't just put him out of his mind. He hasn't just got on with his life. No, this father is daily watching because he's daily ripped up inside over the lostness of his boy. But it gets even better. Because it says not only is he watching, not only is he ripped up inside about this, but when the father sees him, verse 20 says, and he ran to him. He ran to him. And it's easy to miss how crazy this is in an ancient Near Eastern context. In the ancient Near East, men of standing do not run. They don't run. They walk. It's a noble walk. It's a slow walk. Other people may run around, but a man of standing never would run. This father runs. It's, it's, it's considered ignoble to run. It's also quite impractical to run because a man in the ancient Near East would be dressed similarly to how I'm dressed today. If I was to take off down legacy sprinting right now, what would I need to do? Wait for it. No, I won't. Don't worry. I'd have to haul it up, right? Right over my head practically, or I'd be tripping all over the place. What an ignoble vision of this man, fully grown man, running down the road. The whole town is saying, this man's lost his mind. What is wrong with this man? He's running down the road. Is it because of his great love for his son? Of course it is, but it's more than that. Why is the father running for his son? Because the father knows that when that son gets down this long road and gets to this village, he's going to be greeted by none other than those same villagers who would have known this whole story but a season ago. Remember that story last week when the son went around the village trying to sell his property? One to one, house to house. The village would be scandalized by this boy. He asked his father for his inheritance while his dad was still alive. Look, the idiot has come home. Look at the moron. Look at the immoral one. The father knows that this news of the son returning to the village will spread like wildfire. The whole village will show up at the door of this village, at the gate of this village, and they will mock him, and they will likely spit on him. They'll invent new mockery songs for him, and they might even physically assault him because this horrible, 
horrible, ungrateful child has come home. And the father is determined that he will be the first to greet his son at the village. The father is determined that when the villagers gather, as they will inevitably gather, that here's the image they will see. Yes, this son returned home and his father standing right next to him. Verse 20 goes on to say that he embraced him and he kissed him. In Jesus' day, a kiss is nothing less than, as 1 Peter 5 refers to it, the kiss of peace. It is a sign of one making peace. The father is making a public display in front of the whole village. I am at peace with this boy, my son. He's doing it on purpose in front of the whole village so they can see it. Can you imagine the shock for this boy to receive such a rejection? He doesn't have to quietly, sorrowfully walk through the village, shoulders slumped, being spat upon. No, amazingly, he finds himself greeted at the gate of the village by his father with a kiss of peace. And friends, here's the point. Something changes in that moment for this boy. Because you see, as he was walking up the road, verses 18 and 19 tell us that on his way, he had put together a confession. What am I going to possibly say to my father when I get there? What am I going to say to him? Oh, man, I got, I, got to, I got to sort this out. So he's walking down the road, and he's sorting out what he's going to say. And verses 18 and 19 tells us his speech to his father, and he's going over it again and again on the road. He says three things, three parts, very important you remember, there are three parts to his planned speech. Part number one, I have sinned, Father, against heaven and before you. See, he's acknowledging right there that he has messed up his life. It's, it's real. He says, I get it. I totally messed this up. I have wrecked my life, and I admit it. It's vital that this boy understands his need, as we saw last week. And the second thing is he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Harsh, but true. I have broken, I'm recognizing, Dad, I've broken the relationship. I have wrecked this between us because of my sin. I cannot be worthy any longer of being considered your son. I get it. I surrender. But part three, though, is where the difficulty comes in. He says, treat me, therefore, as one of your hired servants. You see, what the son is doing when he says, treat me as a hired servant, is he's got a plan. Okay, Dad, I've sinned. I've broken the relationship. But let me make it better. I'm going to fix this, Dad. Just give me a job. Give me a job. Maybe somehow in time... I can, as a hired servant, I don't know how I possibly could earn enough, but maybe, just maybe, I could earn back what I lost for you. And I could return that to you and say, see, Dad, I fixed this. But as his father greets him at the gate of the village with this embrace and this kiss, Unasked. Notice the son has not said anything yet. He hasn't apologized. He hasn't acknowledged his sin. No, he shows up at the gate, and his father already is showering this greeting of peace and blessing 
and acceptance onto his son. Something in that moment changes in that boy's heart before he gets his speech out, and it changes his speech. Something happens in verse 20 in this experience of this son with his father that changes the speech, so that in verses 21, verse 21, when he makes his confession, he goes from three parts down to two parts. He says in response to his father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer, and number part two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He says those. Still true. Right there at the city gate, the father and the son together, and he says with everybody listening, I've sinned, and everyone goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. They're like, mm-hmm, absolutely. I don't know why I made this little pose here, but that just seemed appropriate. But he doesn't get the third part. Did he forget? Did he forget the servant bit? No. Did his father cut him off? Some have said maybe the father cut him off. I don't think so. The son dropped it because he realized with this initial greeting from his father that there is actually nothing I can do to make this right. You see, he thought up to that moment that he could still make it better. But as he sees his father come and show such amazing, unasked for grace, gift, something he can't earn. Father, I haven't even apologized and you're welcoming me. In that moment, that son realizes, I can't fix this. It's not about the money. It's not about what I've done. It's about a shattered relationship that I can't fix. But here's my father right here already welcoming me in. In that moment, in his experience of God's, uh, the Father's unasked for, unmerited gift of acceptance, in that moment of him experiencing the Father's grace, he says, forget the servant bit. You see, he came home expecting to ask his dad for a job to make it better. And instead, he came home and received a Father's amazing grace. And it changed him. And he said, I guess I can't make it right. All I can do is say, I'm sorry. I broke it. And I receive your embrace. He realizes in that moment of this amazing grace that he cannot fix his life He needs to stop trying to fix his life. The whole problem in his life up to this point is he thinks it's all up to him, but instead he throws himself on the mercy of the Father and says, I'm sorry, I broke it, and I receive your kiss of peace. And the Father doesn't miss a beat. He makes sure that this reconciliation is complete, and he does it in front of the whole village. Verse 22 and 23 He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The whole village hears him say that. Who's got the best robe in the father's house? The father. He's saying, bring my own robe. Put it on him. Do you see that picture? The father's putting his own identity onto the son in front of the whole village. Put the best robe on this son. And then says, go get him a credit card with the family name on it. Well, actually, he says, put a ring on his finger, but that's what it means. 
The ring of a family was the way you could buy and sell. You could enter into contracts. And the father says, put a ring on his finger. The son that has lost half of the property is being given a family credit card. What's wrong with his father? The father says, if he's my son, he's my son. And my son wears the signet ring. My son has the full executive authority of the family. My son's back. Put the ring on him. And put shoes on his feet, by the way, because sons wear shoes. Servants don't wear shoes, but sons wear shoes. See, he's doing these symbolic gestures right in front of the community watching to declare, my son is my son. And the best part of this, best part, is when he says, take the fattened calf and kill it so that we may feast and celebrate. What's great about the fattened calf is that it tells us that the father intends to invite the entire village to the feast because a family would normally have a goat or a sheep. A goat or a sheep will more than feed the household. If it was going to be a little party at home for the household, goat or sheep suffices. Fattened calf needs the whole village to eat it. And you could say, well, the father is throwing a big party. He's excited. He is, but he's also being extremely strategic. All y'all are coming to my house tonight because we're getting the fattened calf. And you're all, all y'all are going to come and eat my meats in my house And my son is going to be standing there right next to me all night long. And as you have my meat in your mouth watching this, I want you to remember that moment. Because I don't want a whisper in this town. I don't want a rumor in this town. I never want to catch any one of you in this village ever saying anything that would question whether this son that has come home is not my fully reinstated son. So come to my house, all y'all, and let's eat. He is declaring over the village that his son is his son. Sure, he's broken the relationship, but by the gracious love of the Father, he has fully brought him back in. And so they party, and they celebrate. And we're going to look at this party more next week because there is someone who doesn't want to show up for the party, and that's next week. And we'll see even more of the Father's amazing grace. But for now, as we stop here today, do you see your story in this parable? Do you see how our rebellion against our Father in heaven, our sin, our rejection has broken our relationship with him. And it's not really about the sin in itself. I mean, the sin is a problem, but the real problem is the broken relationship, the results. That's our spiritual condition. And that what the Father is doing here is reaching into an impossible situation, something I can't fix on my own, and fixing it for me. Unmerited, unearned, I can't ever do enough to earn this. It's interesting, there's a phrase the Father uses in verse 24 where he says, for this son of mine was dead 
and is alive again, was lost and is found. You might say, that's kind of harsh. The father said he was sort of dead to him. But the reality is when we look at this parable as our parable between us and our father in heaven, this is exactly the truth that our sin and our rebellion breaks our relationship with our Father in heaven, and the resulting spiritual condition is death. We're dead. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, which means at the end of your life, when you've lived a life of sin, your paycheck is death. And I know when I talk to non-believers and friends of mine who are struggling with their faith, and they'll say, well, does, doesn't that make God vindictive? It's like you, you, you sin a bit, and then God makes you dead. I mean, come on, isn't that a little too vindictive? And I'll say, well, that's one way of seeing it, but try this. I said, if you believe the worldview I've come to believe, which is that there is a God of the universe that made the heavens and the earth and made you and me, then if that worldview is true, where does life come from? And they'll sort of begrudgingly say, well, I guess in that worldview, life comes from God. Okay, so life is with God. And I'll say, in that same worldview, we're told through the Bible that sin, rebellion against God, breaks our relationship. It puts us away from God, apart from God. It creates a great chasm between us and God. And and they'll say, okay, sure, begrudgingly, if that's true. And I'll say, well, in that world then, if I have rebelled against God, am I still having life? And they'll say, no. You're right. I I I guess if you're rebelling against the God, the source of life, then you're dead. And I'll say, so did God make that happen to me? Or did I make that happen to me? I have rejected God. I've rejected the source of life, and therefore I'm dead. This week I was determined um, to stop watching Netflix. I was, um, I, it was like a personal commitment. I'm like, I'm going to not watch any more Netflix. I'm going to read novels. It would be a good spiritual discipline for me to read novels instead of watching Netflix. And then there it was on Wednesday night, I get an email from Netflix saying, The Walking Dead Season 6 just came out. <laughs> so out the window went that resolution. And the reason I say that is because I love, as some of you have heard before, I love zombie films. And you're thinking, where is he going with this? And here's here's where I'm going with it. (laughs) Zombies, The Walking Dead is a picture, I think it's a beautiful, not beautiful, kind of grotesque, but in my twisted mind, a beautiful metaphor for our condition without Christ. Because we're dead without Christ. We're dead in our rebellion We're walking around, we think we're alive, we act like we're alive, but we're actually dead. We're the walking dead. And that's an impossible situation to fix. I mean, how much can a dead person fix themselves? I mean, put it this way, when Lazarus was laying in the tomb, how much was he cooperating with Jesus up to the moment of his resurrection? Was was Lazarus like 50% part of the resurrection? Was it what he was doing in his mind or his heart? No, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus had nothing to do with it. Jesus spoke into Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. This is a picture of God's grace. We see the father enter into an impossible situation. The son has destroyed the relationship. It is unfixable in his hands. Only, the only one that can fix this is the father, giving free, unmerited gift. And so it is with God that he comes in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. 
The father sends his son into an impossible situation of a bunch of dead sinners and says, take the death that they are living on yourself that they may live. Or from our story, take the humiliation that's on them and take that humiliation on yourself that they may live. Go into that impossible situation and do what they cannot do on their own. This is grace. And this is our story. And in response to such grace, our only response can be to drop our own aspirations, to fix our own lives, and to say, I can't. I can only receive. You are saved by grace through faith, not by your own works. Why are some drawn to Jesus while others grumble? Because some hear the gospel as gospel. Some hear the good news as good news. Last week we saw that the way we can receive that good news as good news is when we know our need. And this week we see that the way we can see that good news as good news is when we behold and experience grace. When we are shown a gift that we could never earn. When the Father comes and says, I know it's impossible, so let me fix this for you. Friends, what about you? Are you still trying to fix your own lives? I mean, the experience of grace comes in and we have a salvation experience, but our whole lives are about coming back to that place of amazing grace. And though we've said yes to Jesus once, we need to say yes to Jesus each and every day. We need to be amazed every day by the grace of God. Do you see that image of the running father? Do you see that image of the running father who embraces you and kisses you when you've earned none of it? If we can have that picture in our mind, that picture of amazing grace, more and more, friends, we will stop trying to fix our own lives. And we will instead say yes to God's amazing grace. As we come now to communion, we are celebrating this amazing picture of grace. God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And my question for you as you come today, will you come and will you see and behold the grace that is given you? And will you let that grace change you, transform you? Will you let that grace let you live again? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.